Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm going to continue part three of our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. What I want to do is give you an idea of where I'm going today. We've already identified in, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that Paul is addressing one of, the, one of the many problems that this congregation in Corinth has, or the many little congregations put together known as the Church of Corinth. And the first problem he's dealing with is the division in the church. And today we get into that passage of Scripture starting in the 18th verse where Paul is going to emphasize the importance of a cross-centered gospel. That has some application to us, a slightly different application to us than it did as he addressed it to the people at Corinth. But what I want to try and clarify for you is how does Paul jump from the subject matter of talking about their divisions that they have and then get into this subject about the cross-centered gospel? And did, did he change subjects? Did he lose his way? And of course, he did not. Part of the problems with the church was they had division and strife. Part of the reason they had division and strife is because they had mangled the main gospel message. And when you mangle the gospel message, you are setting yourself up for a lot of problems that develop in the church. That's what happened in the Corinthian church. As Paul says, one of the reasons you're having so much trouble getting along is you have a fundamental theological error. You have messed up the gospel message. Far be it from us to allow that to happen in our church, right? So we start reading in the 18th verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now, verses 18 and 19, just that short little bit I read, set the themes for this section we're entering into. And those themes are going to form the outline of my sermon today. I will finish reading a few more verses in that little cluster before I'm done. But that gets us started. The first thing that, theme that comes out of this is concerning the actual preaching of the gospel message. And according to Paul, the preaching of the gospel message is the preaching of the cross. Put that in contrast to Jesus' ministry when the gospel message was the proclamation of the kingdom. It was not the proclamation of the cross. It wasn't until after the cross happened that Paul decided that the gospel message included the message of the cross. So he's, 
addressing the Corinthian church and saying, you are messing up the message of the cross. It should be the centerpiece of your gospel. One of the ways that these people in the Corinthian church were messing up that message of the cross was they valued style over substance. That happens a lot of times in, well, at least in the kind of churches I grew up in, Pentecostal churches. It seemed like sometimes people were more impressed with the style than they were the substance. You know, the Corinthian church had that problem. It wasn't necessarily that they were concerned about what was being said. They just liked the way it was being said. And Paul said, you've got a problem because what is being said is wrong. And they were saying, well, we like Apollos' preaching way more than we like Paul's preaching. There's some indication that Paul was probably not a great orator. On the other hand, when we see him bearing, bearing testimony to his conversion experience before kings, he seemed to flow logically. But there was just something about Paul's delivery that wasn't as polished, wasn't as impressive as Apollos, who is said in Scripture to be quite a skilled orator. So they liked the way Apollos delivered the message. And they started to like some other teachers that came through that had some flair and some style. But Paul said, the problem is, you like the way they say it, but I don't like what they're saying. You're messing the message up. I've spent 44 years ministering from the pulpit. And through those years, from time to time, I have witnessed people latching on to some clever little saying that they heard some preacher say, most often on television. And they took it for gospel truth because the way it was presented or because the way it was packaged in a clever delivery. And so that's the way these little things get started. People hear somebody that there's something about the power, the persuasive power of a televised sermon. They can say almost anything, and people take it. It must be true. Now, before we had the phenomenon, it must be true, I read it on the Internet. We had the same problem. It must be true, I heard it on television. And so they come up with these little witty ditties. And it sounds clever, but sometimes it's theologically hollow. The second thing that happened at the Corinthian church is there were some that were hiding the true message of the cross. They were ashamed, which takes us back to Paul's statement when he wrote uh, to the Romans. And he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of Christ unto salvation. And so Paul was carrying this idea along that there are some people that are growing ashamed of the message of the cross. I found an online site that had a number of different Bible versions available on it. Well, I say I found it. I found it a long time ago. I use these resources quite often. And this particular website, I could take any single verse, and it would show that verse in a couple of dozen translations. So you could just read the same verse different ways, every different way it was. In this one I had, 
Verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness, foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, the King James Version says the preaching of the cross. 21 out of 23 of these translations say the word or the message of the cross. And the King James Version and one other version, uh, they stand by themselves in saying the preaching of the cross. <clears throat> I don't think the King James men did not understand that. I think they intended for their wording to mean something other than what we took it to mean. The preaching of the cross, I don't think King James men at all were trying to put the emphasis on the act of preaching. I think they were trying to point to the message. But it's easy for those who are reading that to assume that what King James was saying is the act of preaching is viewed as foolishness to the world. And those of you who have been in any kind of uh, Pentecostal church for any number of years have probably heard people who have made reference to the foolishness of preaching. It's kind of gotten shortened to that. But the fact of the matter is, it's not the preaching that is supposed to be foolish. What Paul is referring to is the message of the cross, the word of the cross. In other words, the cross itself has its own message. It's shorthand for the whole crucifixion experience of Jesus. And that whole thing is viewed by those who are not saved as being foolishness. Now, many commentators have observed that the offensive message of the cross is lost to us today. What Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, what they understood, what made perfect sense to them, it bypasses us. We don't quite grasp the offense of the cross like they did in that day. The Corinthians understood what he was saying. We don't quite get it. To us, the cross is something quite different. The cross is a furnishing that we use for decor in our sanctuaries. The cross is a piece of jewelry that it may be put on a ring or put on a necklace. The cross is something that we think of in warm terms. It says, I'm a Christian, I've got a cross. You see a cross on somebody's bumper sticker, and we make the assumption they, they must be proclaiming to be Christians or at least sympathetic to the cause, or somebody else is driving their car, one of the two. But we make these associations with the cross. And they are all very uh, benign associations. But when you talked about the cross in that culture, you were reminding people of something that was very ugly and very despised, very shameful. Now, we studied some of that when we were in uh, the Gospel of John. And as the early church was developing, and part of that culture was fully understanding the shame of a crucifixion, some of these people began to hide the fact of Jesus' shameful death. They, they didn't want to mention that part. They don't mind the resurrection. 
They don't mind the promises after the resurrection. They don't mind the development of the Christian theology, but they didn't necessarily want to have to talk about their founder suffering a death of a criminal, a common criminal. That, to them, was embarrassing. And Paul said, you're making this fundamental error. You cannot refuse to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't care how the world views it. This message of the cross is vital to the gospel. You can't extract it out. It's a part of it. They were cheapening the gospel message. We can't remove the cross from the gospel message. Now, we don't find the same shame in the gospel that they felt in their culture. We don't find the same shame in the concept of the cross. We realize as a matter of just intellectual awareness that they were ashamed of it and it was a shameful thing, but we don't feel the shame. But there is a trend, it seems like, for the church to lose the power of the preaching of the cross. Good, truthful gospel preaching is rapidly being replaced by preaching on contemporary issues. Motivational sermons. You can have your best life today. Where's the preaching of the cross? And even though we're not avoiding it because it's, we feel it's shame, we're avoiding it because it's not hip. It's not trendy. It's not filling the sanctuaries. The people who are preaching contemporary issues are drawing the bigger crowds. The people who are just simply sticking to the gospel truth, they're not packing the churches out. Now, if the preaching of the cross and the preaching of the truth continues to whittle away the congregation, I guess one day it'll just be you and me because I'm not changing. I won't compromise the power of the truth just to draw a crowd. I like the preaching, the strong, straightforward, unabashed, unapologetic preaching of the truth. I like the spirit of John the Baptist. And the Bible says that he had been telling Herod, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. And the way that stated was, it was not a one-time de declaration. He had told him repeatedly. Now, who talks to the king like that? You get an audience with the king? Who goes in and says, I'm here to talk about the fact that you have your brother's wife, and this is wrong? And if you get a second invitation back, who's going to bring up the same subject again? And it eventually angered Herod so much that he found an opportunity to have John beheaded just so he would get this pest out of his life who keeps bringing up the fact that he's got his brother's wife. I'll kill the guy. Well, you can kill the messenger, but you can't kill the message. The truth penetrates. I understand biblical truth is offensive. I understand truth is confrontive, but it should never be an embarrassment to us. Now, I, I don't know a lot of you in depth. I, I'm familiar with all of you, but I don't know the history of your life and the very deep things you think about and how you think and how you feel. But I, I don't know, have you ever been in a position in your entire life where you were a little bit of shy about letting anybody around you know that you were a Christian? 
Have you ever kind of said, just, I just hope that they don't ask? Well, I went through an era where that was difficult for me. I mean, I loved God, but I was in high school uh, with a graduating, it wasn't a large high school, graduating class of 192, but I felt alone as a Christian. I had two or three young boys from my church that attended school with me, but they were not in part of my class. And I was surrounded by heathens. <laughs> it wasn't always easy to take a Christian stand when you are surrounded by antagonistic people. I remember one time we were supposed to write a research paper. And a friend of mine who was declaring his calling into the ministry a few years before I ever declared my calling, he wanted to write his research paper on uh, the Pentecostal movement. And when he announced his topic there in that English class, I felt so sorry for him. He's going to talk about the Pentecostal movement, which he's a part of and I'm a part of, and we might be the only two in this whole school that I don't know. So I, my, my mind just kind of rebelled against that. Teacher said, what are you going to write on? I think I'll write on the, the cliff dwellers in Colorado. <laughs> That's safe. And then we had to deliver a presentation on our research paper when it was done. And when he got up to deliver his presentation on his research paper, he was talking about the history of Pentecostalism and going through uh, early America where they had the shakers, and they were called shakers because they shook. <laughs> and then they had question and answer session, and I was, I was nervous for him. I mean, he's putting it right out there. And so somebody said, so are there Pentecostals yet today? He said, well, yeah. And he looked at me. <laughs> do we have Pentecostal churches in town? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. And he, he named our church. And with God as my witness, I, I just... I was breaking out in cold sweat because I just knew, I just knew this guy was going to say, and there's one of them right there. <laughs> Lord, get me out of this. It wasn't until I understood the calling of God on my life that I read with fresh eyes when Paul wrote to the Romans and said, for I... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed. And I had to get through that era when it was a little bit difficult 
I, I, I was happy to be an undercover agent for God. That didn't bother me at all. But to be an out front, up front kind of, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't care what the rest of the world believes. It's the people that are perishing, they're offended by it. But I'm not offended by the gospel message. It should never be an embarrassment. You can't change the gospel just to make it appealing to people. And you can't hide the truth of the message just because it's unpopular. And you can't water it down and you can't throw parts of it out. You can't preach the resurrection without preaching the crucifixion. And you can't let the politically correct crowd get their tentacles wrapped around the church. You just got to preach it just like it is. I move to point number two. In the theme brought out in this 18th verse, there is an impact of the message of the cross that Paul refers to. Now, when we compare the modern church to the early church, People generally like to go to the book of Acts and point out the phenomenal revival of that early church. They're the day of Pentecost. And revival breaks out in Jerusalem. And it could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000 people in Jerusalem out of a city of 25,000 people. I mean, this was major revival. Because when it said there was 5,000 people that got saved, uh, you might calculate how many does that include if you include children and women. And it, typically, they took count of, of men. But this revival that was literally taking over this city... We compare our modern-day church to that church in the book of Acts, and we feel very anemic. Where's that revival like they had there in the book of Acts? Where is that revival that's sweeping through the city and converting the masses? Where is that? Where's the kind of revival that followed Charles Finney around, where he was such a popular revivalist that he held revival in one town and had to close the revival down because there was nobody left to get saved? Such a powerful revivalist, they have accounts of Finney walking through the working factories. Where just walking through the factories, people fell from their machine on the floor and began to cry out for forgiveness because of the power of the Holy Spirit following this man even as he walked through the factories. Where is that New Testament church? Well, we go over to the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he's talking about the message of the cross that is not necessarily impressing everybody. There's a whole lot of people who are not impressed by the preaching of the cross. He's painting quite a different picture from what happened there in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. He's writing to a little church where if you are preaching the cross, you're going to make a lot of people mad. And Paul understood that. Laboring tirelessly in Asia taking the gospel to the lost, encountering resistance every place he went. They didn't all respond to the message of the cross, to the gospel, like we think they did every place else. As a matter of fact, he found it was quite a hard message. Quite a lot of people that didn't want to hear it. Quite a lot of people got angry about it. Paul never pastored a megachurch. Paul was never treated like a rock star. Paul was so hated, they tried to kill him sometimes because he was preaching the message of the cross. Paul had a contract out on his head. And he was not even the most popular person in the church at Corinth, even though he was the founder of the church. 
He couldn't even get most of the people there to like him. So Paul writes about the message of the cross, being accepted by some and rejected by some. What I want to say about that is people, we just can't get them all saved. And that's a reality. I would like to think that you just preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit does his work and people get saved, but a lot of people don't. You know, we talk about people making decisions for the Lord. Throughout my ministry, I've been able to honestly say, I've preached meetings where we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of, I can't say hundreds because I've not preached to that many, but we've had dozens of decisions. Most of them said no. You don't find a lot of people saying yes to the preaching of the gospel. Paul encountered that same difficulty. There's nothing magical about preaching the preaching of the cross that forces the coldest, hardest people to surrender to God. Paul was frustrated because he preached the message and people just could not punch through and understand it and receive it. And then within this little scripture that we started off with, we notice that Paul divides people into two groups of people. Now, there's a lot of ways you can divide the world. Not any single one is the only way. But the way Paul chooses to divide the, wor- uh, the world, the entire world, into two distinct groups, he says those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Did you notice the tense of the verbs that they're using there? They are being. It's this present, progressive, passive tense that indicates an ongoing process that is going to be completed at some time in the future. So for me to say I am saved merely expresses my confidence in God's word and his promise and his guarantee that one of these days I shall be home free. When I say I'm saved, what I'm saying is I'm on the ship. But theologically what you have to understand, the ship's not in port yet. I'm saved because I'm on board. If I don't jump ship before we get there, everything's going to be fine. Paul said we are being saved, but he also said there are people who are perishing. Now, there's something important about this. They're not gone yet. Don't give up on them. They are perishing before your eyes, but it's not over yet. They are rotting and dying before your very face, but it's not over yet. Until they're dead, there's always the possibility of the Holy Spirit turning them around. They're perishing, but they're not done for yet. That's the reason we cannot write off anybody so lost that they're hopeless. I'm shocked how often we see something of this nature coming from people who otherwise profess themselves to be Christians. We might talk about evil people and somebody might pipe up and say something like, well, they need to be killed. I hope they die. We might hear the death of an evil person and somebody who professes to be a Christian rejoices over the death of the wicked and say, well, the world is better off without them. I hope they rot in hell. 
These things are shocking because our mission is to take the gospel to the lost, to those who are perishing, and to ever get mentally to the point where we rejoice that anybody didn't make it. We rejoice at the death of the wicked is just to rejoice that somebody missed heaven. And I don't get that. I mean, this is a, we're living in a world that is just a hot spot. You know that. We've got reports of ISIS that are slaughtering Christians. And the hatred that is arising within what I would call the Christian community is appalling. We need to go over and just bomb them and take them all out. Well, that might be a political statement, but it's not the church's mission. He's not asking us to go wipe out the enemy. He's asking us to pray them into the kingdom. So have we spent more time as Christians praying that we can win the war than we have praying that we can win the spiritual war? You know, there is a revival in the Muslim community. There are a number of adherents of Islam that are seeing visions and appearances of Jesus and being converted. He's trying to penetrate that world. We're not helping matters if we want somebody to just go kill them all and be rid of them. It has to be a compassion for the lost. And it's a crime. It's a shame if the Christian church ever gets to the point where we don't care for the perishing and for the dying. We're missing that sometimes. Years ago, there was a popular television evangelist. He was dominating the Sunday morning airwaves. His crusades grew by leaps and bounds. He was packing out the largest arenas around the nation. He grew ever more arrogant as time went on. And it got to the point where he realized the power he had in his persuasive preaching to bring people to a shouting fit on their feet with about anything he wanted to say. I remember him saying this, and I remember also the testimony of Jim Cimbala, who said he had tuned into this pastor late one Sunday night to watch a, a taped version of the crusade. And he had heard a similar thing because I think it had been said multiple times as this evangelist had made the comment that he said, I think that drug dealers ought to be lined up against a wall and shot. And not only is that shocking for somebody to say, the shocking thing was the people who came to their feet and cheered and applauded and amened him. Not only do we have a man whose theology is so far off, we have people like sheep blindly following him as he says, I think these people ought to be killed. And it so broke Jim Cimbala's heart. They tried to communicate with this evangelist and write a letter and, and appeal to him as a Christian brother and got nowhere, totally rejected. Didn't want to hear anything critical of his ministry. There's two kinds of people in this world. I hope you're the part of the group that's being saved. You're not there yet, but we're getting there. But there's a rest of the world that's perishing. What are we going to do? We have 
we have to focus on the perishing. The final point is Paul refers to God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. And I pick up reading in the 20th verse. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And th there's no distinction between those three. He's just using a, a repetitive uh, literary tool. The scribe, the wise man, the debater, they're all in the same group. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Keep that in mind. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached. Not preaching, but the message, the foolishness of the message, to save those who believe. For indeed, indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. No apologies for it. Didn't make any difference what their culture thought about it. We preach Christ crucified. Some thinks it's a shame. Doesn't make any difference. It's what happened. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I will wrap up my sermon just a couple of comments on that. So hang with me. First, we look at the context. Paul is still arguing for the importance of keeping the message of the cross at the center of the gospel so this church doesn't continue to be in the mess that they're in. They got the message wrong. You mess up the gospel truth, you have all kinds of problems in your church and in your life. So they had indulged teachers who were watering down the gospel by de-emphasizing the message of the cross. They were highlighting the good stuff, but they were minimizing the shameful part. And they're... Division was due to their carnality, their immaturity, and their carnality, immaturity is tied to their weak and their flawed gospel. They were embracing this compromised message. We just can't grow and mature on a false gospel. It does not mature you. There is no power in a false gospel. There's only power in the truth. Gordon Fee observes in verse 22 that there are two idolatries in our fallen world. The Jews ask for signs and the Greek search for wisdom. Those are the two idolatries he points to. The Jews have the idolatry of wanting power. We want to see signs. And the Greeks search for wisdom, what they can figure out, what they can use their brain for. The Gnostics who worship knowledge and valued it as the means by which we gain our salvation. The more you know, the more that is revealed to you, the more saved you are. So you got some people that just want the sheer power and some people that just want the sheer knowledge and both of them are idolatries of the lost world. And the commentator calls them the self-centered expressions of any man that's in rebellion to God. And Paul says, now, let me explain something to you. There's two kinds of wisdom. There's the kind of wisdom that the world claims to have that in reality is utter foolishness. And then there's God's wisdom. God's wisdom, obviously, we know we're way ahead of the game on this, is far superior to earthly wisdom. For the wisdom of God... Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save them 
who do believe. Uh, again, quoting Gordon Fee, a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride, and thus constitutes the worship of the creature, not the creator. Let me put that in simpler terms. If you discover God through your own wisdom, instead of discovering God as revealed by the Holy Spirit, that God is going to be a caricature, an extension of you. If people discover God because they love to hang out in nature, they don't know anything about the Bible, they don't, don't care anything about church, but they just want to go out in nature because they can just soak in the grandness of creation just blessed by the beauty of nature. And I think it's a very inspiring thing. But if you discover God through earthly wisdom, as you say, oh, look at the sun, look at the weather, look at the blooming trees, look at the flowers, look at the fields, look at the Grand Canyon, your God is going to take on characteristics of you because you do not understand who God is. People who discover God through philosophy. They've dealt with philosophy. They've come to the decision, there must be a creator out there. Philosophically, it makes sense to me. That God is only going to be a God of their own making because they have not understood God and discovered God through his word, through the truth. So people who discover God through their deep appreciation for nature or their, their uh, uh, disciplines in philosophy... All they know is there's something out there more powerful than, than themselves. But they don't really know who this God is. They, they don't understand him. So as they begin to try to describe God, they describe him in their own finite ways. And they come up with stuff like this. I believe God is a God of love. Well, that, that's nice. He loves. But there's so much more to God. You can't just stop at philosophically thinking, I just think he's a, a God that just loves everybody and loves everything and, and he would never hurt a fly. Uh, behold both the mercy and the severity of God. There's a lot of dimensions to this God. The one and only true God is only discovered through the message of the cross. He can't be the God who didn't get crucified because that's all such a vital part of paying the debt for our sins. He's discovered through the message of the cross. And if they're not preaching the message of the cross, they're not really revealing God to people. He's not the God of the ocean. He's not the God of the volcano. He's not the God of the sky or the God of the war or the God of love or the God of nature or the God of thunder or the God of the sun. But he's all of those. He is... The God of the cross. And who else has a God like that? He's the God that the cross points to. He's the God who gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the message of the cross. He's the God who paid the penalty for fallen man. Have any of you ever here, any of you ever committed a sin? Let me see your hands. <laughs> the message of the cross means he died for you. 
Because if you offend in one area of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. We are lost. We are undone. We're sinners. But He died for us. That's the message of the cross. Worldly wisdom cannot find God. They cannot reason Him out. Worldly wisdom rejects the message of the cross. But in the 23rd verse, Paul talks about the different ways the Jews and the Gentiles reject the cross. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. See, the Gentiles think the message is foolish, and the Jews think it is scandalous. That's the word that is there. When they, it's a stumbling block, that word is they think it is scandalous. It's an embarrassment to them. The Gentiles think it's foolish because they don't understand how out of this crucifixion, if they're not saved, of course, out of this crucifixion, anybody can worship somebody who died as a common thief or a common murderer or a common criminal. That it just totally, that escapes them. But to the Jews who understand it to be truth, somebody was crucified, they said, how can you make that guy your Messiah? That's shameful. He's going to come. If he's going to come as our Messiah, it's going to be in a much grander way. It won't be as a, a, a baby in a humble place in a stable. It's, it's got to be coming as a king. And he's certainly not going to leave this world through the doorway of the cross. He's, he's got to ride out on a white horse. It was, it was all an embarrassment to them. It was a stumbling block. It was a scandal. It's a disgraceful message. They couldn't get by the stigma to accept that Jesus was their Messiah. They refused to believe that he actually came in such a lowly way and died in such a lowly death and still is going to set up their kingdom. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for those who are being saved, for those who believe, the message of the cross is a message of power. We don't see it as a message of foolishness. We see it as the unequaled wisdom of God. And Paul puts it this way, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, the weakness of God is stronger than man, and it's only revealed through the message of the cross. How great is our God. Worship team, would you come?